The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. Because of you, our show is now the number one show on the Voice America business channel. Of course, we also want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially viable. And for the first hour of the show... Uh, this week, they, our sponsors are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Golden Minerals, Clifton Star, Silvercrest Mines, Duncan Park Holdings, and Swiss America. That's a gold bullion trading company. As regular listeners know uh, to this show, they know that uh, I have called this the buying opportunity of a lifetime for gold mining shares, the really important dynamic that makes me so bullish on gold mining shares is not necessarily the nominal price of gold. No, not at all. What's really important is the real price of gold. What does an ounce of gold buy relative to everything else? And what we've seen is a very dramatic increase in the real price of gold since the Lehman Brothers collapse in the fall of 2008 and into the um, bottom of the market in March of 2009. During that period of time, an ounce of gold would almost triple in its purchasing power as measured against the Rogers Raw Material Fund. Uh, and this is nothing new. According to Bob Hoy, who's looked at, the, at history, whenever we've had these major credit contractions, we've seen the price of gold, the real price of gold, what an ounce of gold will buy, rise very dramatically. And what that does then is it triggers 
a bull market in gold mining. Gold mining profits rise dramatically. It's, it pulls in capital into the sector. And then what happens is we have an increase in the supply of gold that actually helps to reliquify the monetary system that has been so destroyed through fiat currency. And this is something that's happened over the last 300 years. Robert Hoy, to his credit, has gone back and measured that. So we're starting to see the fruits of higher gold prices now. We're seeing real, uh, we're seeing profits rise very dramatically for companies like Newmont and Gold Corp and Ag Eagle Eagle. Those are a few that I follow. And I think it's just a matter of time before we start to see those profits capital flowing down the food chain into the junior mining companies, the companies that are much better at finding new, uh, new gold deposits than the seniors. The senior guys are conservative. They want to increase next quarter's profit, but the juniors are the ones that are able to go out and put high-risk capital into the ground, and they are the companies that are finding new gold deposits. It's always been true, and it's, it's proving to be true this cycle as well. So I am very happy that we have many junior gold mining companies as sponsors to this show. And coming up a little bit later, in a few minutes, we're going to have Frank Callahan. He's the CEO of Barkerville Gold Mines. And that's a company that just announced uh, the commencement of production in their British Columbia uh, property just this past week. So we're going to look forward to talking to Frank and get an update on uh, Barkerville Gold. But before we get to Frank Callahan, uh, we're going to talk to an old friend, Dr. Robert McHugh, who's been with us on this show a, a couple of times in the past. Uh, I'll be talking to Dr. McHugh in just a minute here, but before uh, we get to that, I want to tell you that our main guest this week is Ian McAvity. He's the founder of the Central Fund of Canada. That's the gold and silver fund that I recommend to my subscribers on a regular basis, and I, I invest in, too, as a way of owning gold and silver bullion. Um, and uh, he also uh, writes an excellent newsletter called Deliberations. He used to be a fairly regular guest on Wall Street Week in the past, so we're looking forward to talking to Ian. And after Ian, we're going to talk to Dr. Lawrence Kotlikoff. He's the economics professor at Boston University who spoke just last week on Bloomberg Television, and that's what caught my eye when this gentleman, uh, a mainstream guy, started talking about how our financial situation isn't anywhere nearly as good as our policymakers would have us believe it is. In fact, Dr. Kotlikoff uh, said, no, our government is outright lying to us about our financial situation. So uh, it's the pain that we're going to have to face in one way or another that I think makes it mandatory that we own gold and gold mining shares going forward. Well, I do want to talk to Dr. Robert McHugh now, um, and I think uh, we have Dr. McHugh with us. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with him, uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to ask you to look at Dr. McHugh's bio on our website, uh, on our Voice America website, and you'll find a, a lot about Dr. McHugh, former banker uh, himself uh, and a technical analyst, and he follows the Elliott Wave uh, uses Elliott Wave and a whole host of other technical tools as well. Thank you, Robert, for taking the time to join us on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Glad to be here, Jay. Really great to have you. I know you only have a few minutes. You're an extremely busy guy these days, but I, I just want to catch up with you on, um, on where you think we are now in this cycle. Now, we've had you on before, and you talked about an A wave down, B wave corrective, B wave up, and then a C wave, a catastrophic C wave down. This is sort of an Elliott wave pattern that started, let's say, uh, what, in, in 2007 or 2008. We had the first leg down to March of 2009. That was the A wave down. Then we had the B wave corrective wave up, which may or may not be finished now. 
Uh, and then I think what you're looking for then ultimately is a sea wave down that will more than likely take us below, or at least may very well take us below the March 2009 lows. Do I have that right, that scenario? That's exactly right, Jay. Okay, so where are we now? Is the B wave over, or is it uh, too hard to tell you? Do we not, do we not, is it inconclusive at this, pace, at this point in time? I think the odds are that the B wave ended on April 26th of 2010 and that we have started the, the C wave down, which is going to take many years to uh, complete, and it's going to be filled with uh, down legs and some corrective waves. And the corrective waves could be fake-out waves because the bear wants to suck in as many people as he can to, to damage them. That's how bear markets work. Mm-hmm. And so some of, the, some of the rallies could be violent inside this uh, bear market decline wave C down. But ultimately, I, I really believe that this catastrophic wave could take the stock market down close to zero. I'm not just guessing that. There are actually large head-and-shoulders technical patterns that suggest that's a very strong possibility. Let's put it this way. The odds are so strong that uh, I wouldn't want to gamble my money uh, that it's not going to happen. Well, let's say what are the odds? Uh, 30%, 50%, what? What do you think, that we see something that cataclysmic? Because I think some of the work that you do suggests that we could have something that's not nearly that bad. Bad enough, to be sure. Worse than most people expect, but not that bad. So what do you think the odds are, if you can right. find some odds? I think right now the odds are 50% that the, that the stock markets will head into the, toward the zero area. Uh, if we get prices to break below the March 2009 lows, then I think the odds increase to the 70 to 80% uh, level that we're headed towards zero and collapse. Okay, well, right now we're hopeful, you know, that that won't happen, but uh, we have to be cautious and we have to be careful. And there's an awful lot of sub-patterns that are smaller than this major pattern that, that warn that the trend is down. Well, there is something that you followed very closely. Uh, I haven't, hadn't heard you talk about it for many months uh, or at least many weeks, uh, but one of the things that sort of tipped you off to the possibility or the probability of a very, very uh, severe decline back in, Oct- in 2007, 2008, I guess it was more, was the Hindenburg Omen. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what is a Hindenburg Omen? And you noted that we may be getting another one or we actually have started to get one already. Could you just explain to our listeners what a Hindenburg Omen is and tell us where we're at uh, with respect to Hindenburg Omens at this point in time? Sure. The Hindenburg Omen is a, an alignment of several different completely independent technical indicators that in, when they line up in combination uh, within certain conditions and parameters, uh, the odds of a sharp stock market decline become far greater than random, far greater than normal, and probably um, too great to uh, ignore. Uh, and uh, the odd of a, odds of a stock market crash become 30%, which may not sound like a lot, but when you think about a stock market crash as being uh, akin to, to economic death, maybe that's not a chance many people want to take um, because the random uh, possibility of a stock market crash is really one out of, uh, one, is less than one-tenth of one percent. So when you raise the odds to 30% with this kind of an alignment, that becomes very dangerous. The a possibility of a sharp decline, but not quite a crash, are still well over 50% with a Hindenburg Omen. We okay, had a Hindenburg you... Omen before the 2007 top, which led to a 16% decline. We got a second Hindenburg Omen uh, just before the 47% 2008 stock market crash. And right now we have one observation. As soon as we get a second within the next 36 days, we will have a third Hindenburg Omen. 
How do you define a uh, crash? I define a crash as a, as a uh, decline over 15% uh, within a, a couple of months. Okay. And um, uh, so, we, so we have a, a, the possibility of a 30. If we get a, what you call a confirmed Hindenburg Omen or an official confirmed Hindenburg Omen, and I know that we don't have time to go into these details right now, I would just suggest to people that you definitely should check out Dr. McHugh's work. Uh, at, uh, can you tell our listeners right now, before I forget, what your website is? Sure, it's it's technicalindicatorindex.com, www.technicalindicatorindex.com. I highly recommend to our listeners that they check Dr. McHugh's out, his work out there, and I think you have even a free trial for people or a, a low-cost trial for people to start with, don't you? Yes, we have a free 30-day trial. Okay, so the Hindenburg Omen, if we've got a 30% chance of a 15% or worse decline, uh, yeah, that's pretty serious, and... Um, uh, I, I would I would agree with you on that. What uh, in terms of the Hindenburg Omen? Can you just tell our listeners very briefly what it is? Yes, it's uh, it's 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 basically an alignment of technical indicators, which makes the statement that the stock market is in an unhealthy condition. It's in a state of flux. Normal markets either see uh, all all systems go where the all the indicators are lining up for, for a bull market rally, or you see that the market's headed down, but there's uniformity in one direction or the other. And, and even if the markets are going down uniformly, that's what you get that leads to bottoms and important bottoms and rallies. Right. So that's healthy. But when you see this market in a state of flux where there's passion for the, to go up, as at the same time there's passion for it to go down, that is an unhealthy market. And historically we've seen every single stock market a major decline and crash over the last 25 years happen during this type of environment where there is a Hindenburg Omen. So it's kind of a bipolar or manic-depressive psychological environment. That's a great way of putting it, Jay. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you write extensively about, uh, you know, every, every day, and I, I can't, I can't uh, highlight enough the importance to me as I follow these markets day in and day out. I know nobody but God knows exactly where things are going to go, and what you're doing is taking the best information that's available out there day by day, trying to let people know what the probabilities of various outcomes are. And I want to thank you very much for passing along your thoughts on the stock market. I want to have you back on a more frequent basis if you're willing to for some short updates like this. And so, uh, you know, it may not be what we want to hear. You know, we'd rather believe that we don't have to face tough times coming ahead of us. But as my old friend um, Ricardo Campoy, uh, when I worked with him as a mining, uh, mining engineer back at ING Bearings a few years ago, used to say when we tried to, uh, to put some numbers together to get loans approved, Ricardo would say, Jay, it is what it is. You can't deny reality. And so I think, Robert, thank you for helping us uh, to see the picture here, and uh, thank you for your great work. And I, and I, again, would urge people to go to uh, your website again is technical. Give it to technicalindicatorindex.com. Thank you very much, Robert, uh, for being with us. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Frank Callahan. He's the president and CEO of Barkerville Gold Mines. Don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Soledin Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project, and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.soledin.com to learn more when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I have with me Frank Callahan. He's the president and CEO of Barkerville Gold Mines. That's a New producing gold mining company, Barkerville trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol BGM and on the U.S. over-the-counter markets under the symbol BGMZF. Recently traded, oh, the last I looked, I didn't see it today, but the last I looked, it was just slightly under a dollar. 
uh, in U.S. money. Uh, one, uh, I think it's 58.1 million shares outstanding, something like that. Barkerville is, is a full sponsor to this show, and that's good news because it means that we get to talk to Frank a second time this, uh, this summer season. So thanks, Frank. Um, Mr. Callahan, thanks for coming back on our show. Mr. <laughs> Jay, nice to be on the show again. Well, you are Mr. Callahan. You're Frank. You're also uh, do the respect of, of Mr. Uh, President uh, Callahan. So glad to have you back. Now, <clears throat> uh, from our prior discussions, our listeners are aware that you had actually uh, started mining uh, ore in D.C., but you had not yet begun producing gold yet. You were stockpiling. Now, just uh, yesterday or just a day, a day or two ago, you put out a press release announcing that you had actually started, turned on the switch at the QR mine and mill in British Columbia. Could you update our, our listeners on that event? Certainly on last Friday afternoon, we got permission from the provincial government to actually continue to actually turn on the mill and actually run the cyanide circuit. So the, um, what that does is it lets us sort of uh, load up the tanks um, and start processing ore actually through the tanks. We'd run liquids and all that other, and then non-grade ore uh, or, or, or material through the uh, through the mill. Now we can actually start running ore through it. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that process started on the weekend, and uh, the tanks are fully charged, and the ball mills are charged. And I was there yesterday. I've only gotten home just uh, an hour ago from the mine. I'll be back up there tomorrow morning for actually officially the the first pour. But uh, to actually watch gold come out of the gravity circuit yesterday was just an absolute incredible feeling. Fifteen years later, and and to sit there and actually watch it working was uh, was truly amazing. Well, yes, in 15 years, for people who may not be that familiar with the junior mining sector, 15 years, it's not, I mean, that's a long time, Frank, and, uh, you know, 15 years is a good percentage of your life and my life, and, uh, but, you know, what, but it underscores the issue of this sector. It takes a long time to make a mine, and then you have cycles that make it non-economic to keep working on it, and then, and then they come back in. So congratulations on that. You've really stuck with it, persevered. And you've also been able to consolidate a lot of property up there. Uh, I think uh, properties that had been, you know, piecemeal or, or had been owned by different people. Now, you've pulled those properties together into a gigantic uh, landmass up there, haven't you? Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the size of your property? And I want to get into the economics of, of your current operations. But to give our listeners some sense of the magnitude of what you've got up there, Frank, could you just tell, our, tell them a little bit about the size of your property? Certainly. It's, uh, it's 60 kilometers long, so it's about uh, just light of, uh, of 30 miles long, wow. 20, 27 miles long thereabouts, and probably in the neighborhood of about uh, five miles wide. And it encompasses seven former producing gold mines, and it's referred to as the Caribou Gold Belt. It's the most prolific gold belt in British Columbia. It's where the gold was first discovered in, in Canada, in British Columbia, uh, after the 49ers left uh, the, uh, the California gold fields, they walked up north. So the, and this ground in particular um, has got 101 creeks that have actually all produced gold. Um, and the historic plaster production is about 2.6 million ounces. And load production is about 1.4 million ounces. So we're back in load production in an area that, that, uh, that they were mining 150 years ago. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure there's there's an awful lot more gold to be found and to be discovered there, and you're going to be working on that. And what I like about your story, Frank, at least if you're successful, is that you're going to have cash flow from operations to start to put holes in the ground to to start to explore that gigantic uh, landmass. 
It's, it's certainly quite true, Jay. And what we've been doing is, is over the past 15 years and accum- accumulating this land package, this gold belt, um, is that we've been doing um, uh, work and, and exploration on it, as well as others before us have done some as well. So putting together uh, the geology model now is, is sort of the stage that we're at. And, and Dr. Jimian, who runs our actual uh, exploration program, is just uh, fantastic. And, and so we expect to see an awful lot more. This is a great gold camp that's just never had the... the, the consolidation of, of uh, from fragmented ownership and put the whole thing together and, and actually treat it as the as the belt itself should be treated. I should mention to our listeners that you have started the mill. That doesn't mean that you're going to be at full commercial production right away, does it, Frank? And and if not, how soon do you think you'll get to full commercial production? And then maybe you can define what that is. Sure. Well, we're actually going to do a gold pour tomorrow, mm-hmm. and uh, and this will be a small pour. And then at the rate we'll be doing, we expect to be doing in excess of 100 ounces a day. 115 is our personal target, and if we're able to achieve that, uh, we'll pour a five-ounce gold bar every four and a half days, 500 ounces. So what, can you tell our listeners again what your uh, projected cost per ounce is going to be going forward? And how many well, ounces it, you it, expect it, to produce? It's published information. It's, it's on file on CDAR for all those that want to go and have a look at the pre-feasibility studies, but it discloses that uh, mm-hmm. at Bonanza Ledge, uh, it's $510 an ounce. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, uh, at QR, it's, uh, it's it's somewhat higher than that, and I don't remember the number off the top yeah. of my head. Okay. But we've got a $1,200 price to work with now, Frank. That's right. Actually, in Canadian dollars, because we mine in Canadian, we just sell right. in the U.S., but we mine in Canadian, and it's uh, 1260 I think, an ounce, $1,270 an ounce today in Canadian. Today? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Frank, you recently raised about um, $8 million. What does that, and that was through a debt offering. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? It's sort of a unique structure, I think. Sure. What we did was actually we announced that we would do up to eight, and we're not going to do that. We'll probably do two-thirds of that or slightly less. Um, and what it was, it was a debt instrument whereby um, the shareholder got a, uh, a, a 10% uh, coupon on his money. Uh, it's repayable at any time without penalty after six months. And we just wanted to make sure that we had enough cash behind us that we could stay strong. And, and we, I wanted to get some new equipment because we're going to be doing custom milling for other mines in the area. We'll be able oh, to bring okay. more to, okay. to our mill. So part of the permitting process that we've been going through with government is actually permitting so we can be a toll mill for other other uh, small mines that are close by that are high-grade, that are economic to actually put in a truck and actually take it to our facility. Oh, very interesting. Well, that's a new, that's a new uh, fact that I wasn't aware of, and it's, that's very interesting because that could add some cash flow for you as well. So it's really good. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I've seen these mining operations many times when they're trying to operate with old equipment and it breaks down, and it's, that can be very, very costly. So you say you're probably not going to raise all of $8 million. You got a 10% coupon that can be repaid at your choice anytime, the company's choice? At, at any time after six months. So they'll okay. get six months interest at, at 10%. So it's really, it's, it's, it's small insurance money is how I'm looking at it. It's and I believe the, uh, the debt holders, though, do have some warrants. Is that right? And, and they get, how, they, how they many get, warrants and what are they exercisable at? They're actually, it's full, full value, so they get the opportunity to exercise um, a dollar at 85 cents um, a share. Okay. There's no warrant right. attached to it. It's just a share. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds good, Frank. And any, anything else you might want to tell our listeners before we say goodbye? Anything, any other note you might want to highlight? Well, you know, if you went and looked at some of the other junior producers, I mean, now this is only going to be our first couple of days of production, and we expect to actually do in excess of 50,000 ounces a year. Um, 
uh, is what we've published in our pre-feasibility studies from both deposits. But if you go look at really other good companies out there like Golden Band and West Dome and Sand Gold, St. Andrews, Goldfields, Timmins, just, you know, yeah. a few of them. I mean, you look at their, what it costs them an ounce, what their ounces of gold are worth in the ground, and they're all in excess of $300. Where do they get what's the market we're, giving we're for you, Frank? $65 an ounce in the ground. Oh, well, so, okay. So if we look at sort of an average of, or they're all over 300 you say. That's correct. <clears throat> so I would guess if you're successful in producing, the market's going to start pricing you up at that level, and that would give our, our listeners some sense of what the potential upside might be for your stock. Now it's selling just slightly under a dollar, I think, right, or around a dollar. Yeah, it's just slightly less than a dollar, and, and you know, it's, the market takes a wait-and-see approach, and they're going, you know, we're, we're behind you because it's been trading some great volume, and yeah. there's been some wonderful profit-taking, but there's still a, an awful lot of upside to it, I believe, and, and uh, I think that uh, people will be very happy. Well, very good, Frank. Thank you again for the update. I hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to have Ian McAvity coming up, the well-known Toronto-based analyst and editor of the excellent newsletter called Deliberations. Ian will be with us. He'll have an awful lot to say about gold, and Ian is extremely bullish on gold as well. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Ian McAvity. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. CA for further information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. 
Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.sullivan.com to learn more. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. Gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a lovely ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Ian McAvity, who is one of the most sought-after independent technical and fundamental analysts in the world. Not only is he able to accurately draw technical, technically significant lines on charts, but his strong grasp of history enables him to breathe life into otherwise dry economic statistics that turn even the most disinterested listener into spellbound observers of Ian's remarks. Ian is not only uh, a market analyst, he is uh, vitally aware of the importance of gold and silver as a preserver of wealth. As such, he has been a creator of two gold and silver bullion funds that provide average investors with one of the best ways, I think, to own precious metals. As my own subscribers are aware, I have the Central Fund of Canada, traded CEF, on the big board as the main way of holding gold and silver. Ian was a founder of the Central Fund of Canada. He is also the editor of an excellent newsletter called Deliberations. Welcome, Ian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks for having me, Jay. Well, it's fantastic to to have you on this show. I can remember many years ago watching you uh, with Louis Rukeyser on Wall Street Week and um, I have always held you in very high esteem for many years and have been privileged to be at certain conferences with you as well, so it's just really a thrill to have you on my show. You started your career as a banker and broker in the United States, I believe. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Who did you work with and and what did you do? 
Well, I dropped out of college in 1961 after a term and a half because I thought it was a waste of time and went to work for the Bank of Montreal in Montreal because I knew I wanted to go into the money business. And after four years of banking, I ended up uh, basically on Wall Street in the research department of Dominic and Dominic in 1965. Um, in '66, the Vietnam War was heating up, so I returned to Canada because I was in Wall Street for training rather than the South Pacific uh, sojourn. And basically came back to Canada right away and worked for Dominic in Canada until 1970 and then moved from a larger broker down to a small broker because I just didn't like the way the large firms were operating. They, you know, we're basically, they viewed the clients as, shall we say, receptacles for house product. Mm. Yeah. That was, so, when I started, that was when I started writing my own independent opinions, and I was basically, I created deliberations in, in 1972 for a small institutional brokerage firm in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And then basically left the industry completely to function as an independent, uh, literally starting January 1, 1975. Well, independent you are. And, um, you know, independent people can say what they think. We had uh, Howard Davidowitz with us last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, on this show. And, you know, this is a guy that knows the retail business inside and out. He's very outspoken. He's always been on his own. Uh, but he gets on Bloomberg and uh, CNBC and other places and just is very outspoken. And, you know, I think the problem with the institutions a lot of times, Ian, I believe, is that people are not allowed or they're, it's not in their best interest uh, sales, uh, uh, best interest for sales promotions to, to speak the truth. So uh, thank God we have people like you on the, that are independent. So you started out, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you were very much involved with the creation of the Central Fund of Canada. Could you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, basically, uh, I was approached by Phil Spicer, Philip Spicer, who had created Central Fund of Canada originally in about 1960 as a small closed-end equity fund in Canada. And in the mid-'70s, I had published a lot of charts relating the performance of gold shares to the metal price. And then once gold started trading freely in 1968, I was actually publishing charts of the shares versus metal performance and by the mid-70s, by 75, 76, I was beginning to say that there was a real need for investors to have access to gold itself because the miners were much more volatile. And you know, they went up more than the gold price when it rose, but then they cracked down harder. Mm-hmm. And that basically Phil came to me. Uh, you know, He's a pure, hard money man. And he came to me, and I just instantly said, here's the opportunity to create a bullion proxy for investors that has all of the mining risk behind it. So it's, you know, essentially it's an above-ground mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, you're, o- you're owning gold and silver, and I, I understand that the Central Fund of Canada is pretty much balanced between gold and silver? Uh, basically, really, since the early 80s, we, we, we IPO'd the, you know, the new construct of Central Fund owning nothing but gold, physical gold and physical silver in Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, We structured it early on in a ratio of 50 ounces of silver for each one ounce of gold. Mm -hmm. When people see the percentages change, they think that somehow we're trading it. Mm. We're not trading it at all. These are permanent holdings that are just, you know, ideally to gather dust for longer than I live. Mm -hmm. But in essence, it's the market ratio or the gold-silver ratio fluctuating that changes the percentages. Mm -hmm. So it's 50 to 1, Ian, still to this day? It's 50 to 1 physical. Mm-hmm. And literally every time we do a new share issue to buy new bullion, uh, 
the actual purchasing process is based on a valuation based on 50 ounces of silver plus one ounce of gold mm-hmm. for each unit that is being purchased. Mm-hmm. So you're 50 to one, but uh, it, it is a convenient way for people to own the bullion. And as you say, it's a lot different uh, owning the bullion than owning the shares. When you're owning the shares, you're taking risk in a company, and, and, and things can go horribly wrong or horribly or very, very right. So I would, uh, you know, I think what we're talking about in the share market is, is one that's much more volatile, as you said, and, and this really provides people with a way of owning gold and silver or real money, in essence, uh, in, in a very safe way. Now, there, are, uh, there is a, a premium that people can expect to pay, though, over the spot price. What, what is that premium, more or less? In these uh, the, the premium on Central Fund of Canada, I would say, ranges from 4 or 5% above net asset value on the low side up to mm-hmm. 10 to 12% on the high side. Mm-hmm. I would say typically averaging around 8%. Mm-hmm. And I think most people would find that if they went out and tried to buy, you know, 10 or 20 uh, Maple Leafs or Eagles or Krugerrands, they're going to discover that that's about the premium that you're going to pay in the best opportunities where you can buy gold coins. And if you're trying to buy small lots of silver, you'll be paying even higher than that. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the, lar- the other issue that's attracted uh, such a large American following for Central Fund is the fact that it's a Canadian entity and the bullion is held in allocated, segregated safekeeping in Canada. And for years, I used to make the comment in all my talks about Central Fund that, you know, Americans seem to be terrified that Franklin Roosevelt might get reelected. Yeah, well, some and, people think, yeah, go ahead. And some people would argue that maybe he has been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, there is that issue. Of, there's always that issue and, and fear of confiscation um, of gold again. What are you, do you have any thoughts on that? on that issue? Uh, well, I, uh, frankly, I don't think that they, I, I don't worry about confiscation at all because they've now put in such a prohibitive and, and smothering tax mechanism. I could envision in a period of crisis where they're going to blame the hoarders uh, for causing all of the problems when the mm-hmm. system breaks down. Mm-hmm. And they just institute a 100% excess profits tax. Mm-hmm. And basically put in, tighten up the rules that basically say if you're going to sell one ounce of gold, you're going to provide your social security number and the dealer is going to withhold 50 or 90 percent of it and mail it to Washington. Mm-hmm. Now, well, that, you know, American, Americans literally have become captives, uh, and essentially slaves of the IRS, which is really quite shocking uh, relative to what the founding fathers originally created. Well, that that is indeed true, Ian. I I could go on for hours about that. That's for sure. But uh, but okay. So we were owning gold, and the then the risk is it just having it taxed away rather than yeah, exactly. actually physically taken away. That's what you see. Well, well f- physically taken away just wouldn't make any sense because it's too it would be too cumbersome. Mm-hmm. And with the tax mechanisms they have in place now, uh, mm-hmm. that's the more likely way. The ultimate, the ultimate form of wealth preservation from generation to generation, invariably, you know, going back hundreds of years, has basically been the grandparent putting a gold or silver coin into a shoebox for the grandchildren. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, you know, to me, that's the ultimate way of preserving wealth and transferring wealth from generation to generation. And obviously, that kind of small transaction doesn't really attract, shall we say, a big paper trail. Mm-hmm. Ian, while we're... Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, how the grandchild deals with it 30 years later is uh, basically that'll be the grandchild's problem. <laughs> if he's fortunate enough to have gold left for him. Uh, 
We, when we're talking about taxes, you know, you, you can buy and sell the central fund. I mean, I do it myself sometimes. I, I have, uh, I hold a, a lot of it for myself for longer term. But, but sometimes, you know, I say, well, I think the market's in. I think we could have a little cutback here, and maybe, maybe we'll take some profits on CEF and buy and buy gold back a little later. You can trade in and out of it that way. I know you're not a trader; you're more of a long-term investor, but. What um, do we get taxed just as we would a in the U.S.? I know you're not a tax accountant, but do we get taxed in the U.S. like we would for any other uh, any other stock? Well, uh, no, because in, basically, as a as a passive foreign investment company, PFIC, mm-hmm. or the, is the the short form of it, that American investors can actually, I, be, I believe, and again, I'm not a tax authority, but if they read the 20-odd pages in the prospectus and translate the legalese into English, I think they will mm-hmm. find that the capital gains tax treatment can be uh, obtained for U.S. holders in passive foreign investment companies. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's There's the... a form that has to be filled in basically declaring the income but because we only own physical metal, we have no income. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, the form is filled in each year with the declared income as zero. Okay, well, that's something individual investors should talk to their tax accountants about, obviously. Yeah, they, they have to go to the website to get the, the IRS reference numbers and then talk to their accountants. It's not a simple process. Okay, so the, while you mentioned... The shares can be qualified for capital, uh, capital gains tax treatment if held for over the, I think it's the 12-month period. Okay, so what is that website while we're on the topic? Uh, basically, centralfund.com. Okay, centralfund.com. Now, you have another fund that is only a gold bullion fund, and then you were telling me as we went on the air, I believe, that you also have a silver bullion fund as well. Could you tell our listeners about that? Now, basically, the, over the years in talking about central fund, you, from east of the Mississippi, uh, they're all gold bugs, and west of the Mississippi, they seem to be a preponderance of silver bugs. Yeah, interesting. So depending which side of the river I was on, people would say, I hate the gold, buy more silver, or I hate silver, buy more gold. Huh. So we ended up creating Central Gold Trust, which now trades on the Amex under the symbol GTU, Jordan mm-hmm. Thomas uh, Underwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, it's smaller than Central Fund. It's a little over $800 million, where CEF is about $3.5 billion now. And then more recently, the Central Gold Trust only invests in gold. You know, so it, it's purely a gold entity. Mm-hmm. Then more recently, uh, two years ago, we launched Silver Bullion Trust, which is much smaller. It's at about, only about $60 million right now, and it only trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange at this point. But if we can enlarge the fund up to something over $100 million at that point, I would expect that we will migrate it uh, down to trade on the Amex as well. Okay. What do you, uh, what's the size of the CEF right now? A CEF, I think just shy of $3.5 billion hmm. okay. in asset value. Uh-huh. And, uh, and a gold? long way from its $100 million IPO in 1983. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and the and the gold fund itself. Um, uh, Central Gold Trust is around eight hundred million. Eight hundred million. Okay. And does that carry more? Would that carry more or less the same premium, eight percent or so? Yeah. It uh, tends to carry a, a lower premium than CEF. Oh, it does. Uh, okay. It, it, it's partly uh, you know if CEF's premium averages around seven or eight percent, I would say the GTU's premium probably has been running more like four or five percent. But there, there was a brief period a couple of years ago where the GTU premium got up to a ridiculous 30%. Yeah. 
Yeah. When there was all the talk about the world was running out of gold coins, and uh, I actually saw people chatting on websites that somehow or other GTU should be valued on the basis of eBay prices for Kruger Uh. (laughs) Oh, It was just, you know, but we get these waves of insanity, and you have to sort of bite your tongue and just sort of, you know, keep your head down and don't get sucked into it. Might be time to take some profits and wait to get back in, then, for those that like Uh, to trade anyway. Well, I was going to say, when the inmates take over the asylum, it's a really good place to avoid. <laughs> so we've had the inmates taking over the asylum. I think sometimes some people think that the inmates have taken over the U.S. government as well, but that's another topic. I uh, would fully like agree to... on that. What was that, Ian? I, w- I would fully agree that they have taken well, over in Washington. Well, certainly, uh, you know, we're hearing, uh, as we've heard earlier today uh, uh, from uh, Professor Kotlikoff that uh, uh, that our government is doing anything but telling us the truth about what they're up to. So it sounds like inmate type of behavior to me. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, we got a couple of minutes before the break here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your big picture view of the equity markets now. Uh, Ian, do you believe that we're in a secular a secular bear market? Or do I you do. Think we're, or you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, I do believe that we're in a secular bear market. And uh, in a lot of the talks that I give, I show charts going right back to 1900. And the key point that I make is people would like to think that the great rise that we had from 1982 to 1999 was normal. Mm-hmm. And the point that I make is big bull markets like that are actually the anomaly. Mm-hmm. And if you look back over 110 years of history, they only, t- pre- they only occupied about one-third of the time. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of the time, the market was basically having cycles that went sideways. Mm-hmm. Now, from 1965 to 1982, the, the Dow kept falling away from 1,000 with about yep. four different cycles in it. And you had similar behavior between 1900 and 1920. And then, of course, the other, the other big one, of course, was 1929 to 32, which was the one occasion previously when the wheels fell off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether we're going into a 65 to 82 kind of sideways cycle or will the wheels fall off, that's, that's not a call I'm prepared to make. But I must admit that I'm quite worried that that could happen because I think we're dealing with the, mag- the magnitude of problems that we're dealing with are of a scale I could ever imagine. Yeah. Well, the wheels falling off are certainly what some people on this show have called for. Uh, Dr. Robert McHugh, who was on a little earlier today, as well as... Uh, uh, Robert Prechter, who's been on, and uh, talk about wheels falling off. Prechter's talking about something on the order of a uh, you know, sub-1,000 on the Dow. Mm. Um, that sounds like wheels falling off to me. Uh, put, put it this way, the wheels would not only be falling off, but you would have fallen through the road at that point. Right. And yeah. it's, it's, and it, it's just, it, it, we're dealing with a scary scenario and what's troubling is watching, you know, the Geithners and the Bernankes and the Obamas and before him, the Cheneys and the, and the Paulsons. They literally seem to pretend that they have the ability to push buttons to make things happen. Mm-hmm. And the only analogy I can think of is basically think of the huge tanker, the cape-sized tanker on the ocean. You know, the captain flips the wheel and he doesn't know he's actually changed direction for two days. Yeah. And these guys are out there pretending to be slalom skiers. <laughs> you know, they're going to change course with every bump in the snow. And it's just, it's insane, the short-term focus that's driving everything. 
it sounds to me a, a little bit like the uh, uh, like the attitudes that the uh, that the boys in the Kremlin had a few years ago that that we now have our own Kremlin in the United States. Uh, well, ironically, I think that I think that the boys in the Kremlin exported it because there's probably more free market economics being practiced in China and Russia than there is in the United States today. Yeah. Well, it certainly is. Uh, it certainly is. It seems to be the case. Ian, the direction is not good for those who love liberty and then personal responsibility and freedom and prosperity. Uh, I think. I mean, when you're looking at tax rates that are that are surging, you say, why why go to work? You know. Um, why should I work so hard if they're going to take at least half of it away from me? But uh, you, being Canadian, you you know something about that. Well, we've been we we've got pretty good tax rates of our own up here, and uh, you know the interesting part of it is we have we've never had the problem that Eisenhower warned of of a military-industrial complex. Right. We've got a we've got a bureaucracy that manages to consume capital as well. <laughs> uh, to some degree, there's been more fiscal discipline in Canada. I would say as much because Canadians have always tended to be somewhat conservative by nature. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't give the credit uh, to, to the government that they would claim for the fiscal condition of the country. But, you know, the Canadian, the Canadian government is, is a pretty oppressive one as well. But uh, relative to the rest of the members of the G7, uh, we've actually emerged as the number one only because we're more reluctant to change. Right. Well, you certainly haven't gotten in trouble with the banking industry the way the U.S. did. You managed to keep out of a lot of trouble that we got ourselves into. Uh, Ian, we have to go to a break right now. I want to come back and ask you some things about the debt markets. I want to get your views on where interest rates might be heading in, in spite of the fact we're, you know, we're borrowing trillions of dollars. We're printing money uh, out the wazoo, as some people like to say, and uh, interest rates keep going down. So I want to ask you about interest rates when we come back after the break. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with Ian McAvity. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. 
Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and run i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try to you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm delighted to have Ian McAvity with me for the next several minutes. Uh, before we get into that, though, I want to thank the sponsors for the second hour of our show. They are, for this summer season, Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Athabasca Uranium, Brig- Brigus Gold, Everton Resources, Millrock Resources, and Golden Hope Mines. Ian, uh, as we went to the break, we just uh, started talking, or at least I was thinking about getting into the subject of interest rates. We're seeing interest rates at extraordinarily low levels, and people who have worked hard all their lives, saved their money, retired folks, I'm thinking of my my parents, my mother is 86 years old, getting absolutely nothing on her savings, at least if she wants to go risk, if she wants to, you know, not assume a lot of risk, which you don't usually want to do at that age, she's getting absolutely nothing. Uh, how far? How long can these interest rates stay low? Uh, they can go. They can go low for as long as you've got a climate in which, in essence, the whole brunt of government policy is focused on reliquifying a banking system, and the banking system chooses to hoard the capital rather than lend it out. And mm-hmm. the banking system basically. The, the ultimate corruption, in my view, has been essentially that Wall Street has just totally taken over the entire political establishment of the U.S. And, you know, you've got a deflationary climate at the moment in the context of people are rushing into Treasury bonds because they still believe the notion that somehow the power to tax gives the government a a so-called AAA rating. Mm. And my only reaction is if the U.S. government is a AAA rating, then they better uh, appoint Bernie Madoff to the Treasury Department to keep that reputation going. (laughs) Anybody else that could. (laughs) Well, I think you're – I think – I think you're making a very good point because Professor Kotlikoff, who we've had on earlier today, uh, is talking about how the United States is not only worse off than Greece, but is absolutely bankrupt. In fact, it's not Kotlikoff that's saying that. It's actually the IMF is saying that. Um, and they are saying that 
that we need to raise, uh, reduce, raise taxes or reduce our spending by some combination of 14% of GDP annually. And if it was just taxes, it would be a double of the tax load right now. Uh, Ian, how can, we, how can that sort of policy possibly be carried out in an economy, especially an economy that is, that is not doing very well? Well, you, you've got, what, a $14 trillion economy supporting about 14 or 13 or $14 trillion of declared U.S. debt. But if the U.S. government actually followed the accounting rules that apply to the rest of the corporate world, which generally accepted accounting principles, uh, the total U.S. debt's closer to $70 trillion. So, in essence, we've already bankrupted the next generation. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, the next the next generation at this point just by the act of being born is essentially inheriting about 6 years of disposable income and debt. That's on day 1. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, you know, the the system the system at this stage people talk of trying to get back to normal. You can't get there because you basically were living way way beyond your means and the mechanism of providing that money has broken down. Mm. You know, last week you had a declaration by the Fed that they were going to change their policy and start buying treasury bonds as the various bad mortgage paper that they had acquired in the bailouts was working its way off. Mm-hmm. So now the treasury is buying bonds. I burst out laughing when I read that mm. and just assumed that the Chinese had called up Bernanke and said, you better find somebody else to buy your bonds. We're not going to play anymore. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, the Chinese have reduced their holdings of U.S. Treasury bonds from something like $940 billion to about $860 billion, but they're still the major creditor of the United States. Yeah, there's nobody else to step in. The Japanese are there to an extent, but they also are, are not that eager anymore because they have their own needs for the savings and their own aging population and so forth, right? Well, you know, exactly, exactly. And you, you've got this, this ocean of debt out there. And ultimately, that debt either has to be repaid or defaulted on. Well, Ian, do you think that's... that's, Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, in in the longer term, I believe that they will end up opting to try and inflate the debt away in the misguided belief that somehow they can control the inflation. Right. So in a sense, I'm, I'm well aware of the deflation inflation camp, and I've often said we've actually got both going on. Mm-hmm. And if you think of the old-fashioned idea that you've got a checking account and a savings account, mm-hmm. money going into your checking account somehow or other is buying you a little less when you go out to spend it. Mm-hmm. And that's, in, in essence, inflation being defined in the context of eroding purchasing power of money. Mm-hmm. And the bigger deflation problem is it's just wiping out the asset valuation of your savings account. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's where when I end up saying we've got both inflation and deflation going on, it's the, the capital erosion is the deflation problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the... Yeah, between go government and user fees and, and basic inflation in the, in the, at the spending level, you know, your purchasing power has gone down as well as your income. Mm-hmm. Well, if the Chinese are stepping away and there's nobody else to buy our debt, God knows the Americans don't have the money to buy it. It certainly aren't willing. I'm not willing to lend to the Treasury, to the treasury markets right now with you know, getting the low rates that we're getting. Um, are, we gonna, are we destined to see some higher rates possibly here in the not-too-distant future? And if so, what is that going to do to the economy? Well, I think, I think in due course you will see higher rates, but in the meantime, I think rates are probably even going lower 
hmm. largely because the fear of the fear of volatility drives people into U.S. Treasury paper. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the the premise that somehow or other a 91-day Treasury bill is ultimately the safest piece of paper because the government has to roll it over every 91 days. Right. And as long as it's a direct Treasury bill, I agree with that. The minute you get into somebody else's repo, then you're introducing counterparty risk. Oh, boy. <laughs> there we but, go again. You know, oh, you know, we're, to, to me, we're only halfway through the credit crisis. You know, the, the crash of 2007, 2009 was mm-hmm. essentially the collapse of the private credit markets. Mm-hmm. And then we then threw a couple of trillion dollars into the system to bail out the global banking systems bought a little bit of bounce in the economy, but didn't do anything to stimulate, you know, real economic activity other than replenish the banks. Mm-hmm. And we're now at the point, the Greek crisis just highlighted the focus on sovereign debt risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we're now into the phase where sovereign debt, not just Greece, Spain, Ireland, Italy, I think the United States, the individual states, and the municipalities are increasingly going to come into focus. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's going to be defending the credibility of the currency that's going to drive up interest rates. So ultimately, then, um, people lose confidence in, in the dollar, the, the world's reserve currency, in fact, even. No, exactly. They, you know, the dollar, not too many years ago, the dollar was over 70% of global reserves because Americans are such extravagant consumers. Mm-hmm. And the trade deficit basically pumped pumped a lot of dollars out into the world. Mm-hmm. Well, the the dollar now makes up only about sixty percent of international foreign exchange reserves, and the, mm-hmm. and a great many countries are modestly reducing it. Mm-hmm. China is not going to do anything foolish like you know trade all their dollars out because they, a they would destroy the dollar, and b they'd incur the wrath of Congress, and America would start building brick walls around the country and basically recreate uh, the 1930s overnight. Mm. You know, so well, the, the Chinese are actually managing their affairs quite, really quite brilliantly. They all went to American universities, watched mm-hmm. them, studied the mistakes that the United States made, and fortunately didn't have Bernanke as a professor. Oh, yeah. Well, the Chinese seem to be much more gold-friendly, much more interested in, in building up their gold reserves. It seems to be the Chinese people, of course, understand that. Our good friend Chen Lin, who works as a partner with me, uh, is from Beijing, has family back there yet, and, and you know, it's just he's impressed on me how ingrained it is in the in the psyche of the Chinese people to own gold. We've been sort of programmed out of that mode, I think. Americans have been taught to trust our government, trust the Treasury bill markets, and so forth. But the Chinese, um, are, are, do you think they're preparing for this day when, when they will perhaps become a leading currency? Uh, I don't know that they will ever surrender control over their currency all that much because uh, nobody really wants their currency to be in the reserve currency status that the U.S. dollar is in because at that point you lose too much control over your domestic affairs. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. why you know, when the Japanese were riding high in the late 80s and the early 90s, you had the evolution of the euro-yen market that basically was yen transactions that had nothing to do with Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were being created in New York, London, and Zurich. And in essence, the Chinese are trying to keep control over their currency value. And basically, they've, you know, America says they're, they're rigging the currency market. No, they're just trying to tie their currency and keep it tied to that of their largest uh, customer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, which has worked very much in their favor. 
But every time somebody from Washington goes over there and tells them they have to revalue, they just close their ears. So, Ian, you you look at charts a lot. I mean, that's the you're, you're a technical analyst. You're long term orientated. What do you see? Uh, how do you see the long term? The U.S. thirty year bond has been in a bull market since two thousand since nineteen eighty two. Really, about mm-hmm. how much longer can this thing go? We keep borrowing more and more money, and yet the long rate keeps you know well within that that channel, dating all the way back to eighty two. How long is this is the long bond going to stay in a bull market? Well, the spikes, the spikes to lower rates invariably reflect moments of fear in the equity markets. Mm-hmm. Yes. And in essence, if, if I'm right that we're going to have a, a trip down below 8,000 on the Dow in the fourth quarter of this year, mm-hmm. then you're probably going to see the, the long bond spike to even lower lows. I'm, I'm reluctant to put a number on it because it won't be a realistic number. Mm-hmm. It'll be a temporary number. Yeah, it'll be a temporary number that's largely driven by fear, mm-hmm. and it'll be fear capital fleeing into the bond market when the, you know when people suddenly realize that maybe the stock market has broken, mm-hmm. and you know we're, and we're going down to somewhere between eight thousand and six thousand on the Dow, and oh. it, it's somewhere at that stage is when Bernanke is going to have no choice but to just you know unleash the helicopters. And un- unleash the helicopters and get it into the hands of average small investors, middle class people, poor people. What? Well, exactly. That, that was my co- my comment at the time when Paulson first announced the TARP program. Remember the the seven hundred billion that was going to bail out Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And I think you've heard me in some of the talks that I give. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if he'd taken that seven hundred billion dollars and dropped it in hundred dollar bills into shopping mall parking lots, that money would have been spent in the economy. All right, and at some stage, that's what they're going to have to do. Okay. They still, at this point, they still seem to think that somehow, rather, giving the unemployed an extra three weeks of unemployment or giving somebody eight hundred dollars to go and buy a six hundred dollar house, you know, <laughs> they, <laughs> Washington still thinks that they can control everything with their checkbook. Yeah, and in the meantime, what they've done is they've got a terrified generation of baby boomers who suddenly realize that all the promises that they were going to be looked after, all those those promises are being broken. And the net result is the, the baby boomer generation is pulling in their horns and reducing their debt and hoping that they can actually sell their house and get out from under, from being underwater. And so we could, that's not a condition that's going away anytime soon. So we could see a strong, a so-called strong bond market, low interest rates on the long end of the yield curve for some time to come yet, you think? I, I would say until there's a really extreme moment in the currency markets, mm-hmm. and it's going to be it's going to be the rest of the world that dictates it. This is right. not going to be a policy decision in New York in the New York Fed or Washington. The rest well, the rest of the world is increasingly establishing bilateral relations because I think the the posture of the U.S. is the driver of the of the planet. That posture has been weakened sufficiently that everybody now recognizes that, in a sense, Washington's an unreliable partner. Well, do you? Um, yeah. So, so you think that? Um, so, so it's hard to say, but but at some point in time, the rest of the world is going to say enough. But do you think they'll run out of the dollar quickly? I mean, the, the whole idea is nobody wants to run to get out. Of, they might all want to get out of the dollar, but they realize if they do it in a hurried fashion. The whole, you know, the house of cards could come tumbling down, and they and they would be somebody would be left holding a bunch of worthless dollars. Exactly. So, in essence, the message will be sent privately to Bernanke and Geithner. Mm-hmm. 
you know, to some degree, uh, they're, they're, nobody nobody is going to fight with Washington on the front page of the New York Times. It mm-hmm. just doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it basically it would bring the whole it would bring the whole House of Cards down. But that said, the House of Cards, as we know it in the G7 countries, basically is destined to come down. Mm-hmm. You know, if you eat the house one brick at a time, once you've eaten the first floor, what's holding up the roof? And we're pretty close to have eaten the first floor. The first floor foundation is pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. That's uh, yeah, literally the primary buyer at this point of U.S. Treasury paper uh, essentially is the Fed. Mm. And that you know that you know John Law would be proud to see his policies being adopted a couple of hundred years later. Yeah, and you might ex- you might just um, tell our listeners what happened to John Law and what happened to his policies. Uh, well, <laughs> basically, the currency ultimately was destroyed, going to zero purchasing power. And last spring, I was actually in the cathedral in Venice, Italy, where he's buried. But you're not allowed to have your picture taken beside his tomb. (laughs) Why? Uh, I don't know why. uh, I wanted to get a picture standing beside his tomb. It's right there, but unfortunately, no no cameras allowed and a very big Italian soldier with a gun standing nearby. Oh, okay. All right. So you didn't take any pictures. So I didn't get I didn't get the picture taken. Well, that's very interesting. Um, all right, so you're so you're Ian. You're suggesting that we could uh, to what test the March 2009 lows in the equity market this year yet? Uh, well, this year I think uh, whether we get as far as six thousand on the first shot down is another matter entirely. That you know, fat fingers could create additional mistakes. <laughs> Technically, my reaction right now with the Dow a little over ten thousand. I think we're pretty likely to see the 8,000 level probe before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And I'm often sort of said, well, you know, relative to what? And I say, I don't, I don't think there's a snowball's chance that you'll see 12,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think the risk right now is 2,000 points down on the Dow with possibly more. And once it gets unfolding, I tend to look at an awful lot of historical bottoms that tend to occur October on the one hand and then subsequent lower lows in March. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of precedent for double bottoming type periods, mm-hmm. and uh, by you know, by next March, I would say if we're going to see six thousand, it's probably closer to March than October. Okay. But once the water starts going over the dam, I'm not going to try and tell it where to stop. Well, if you know, we see, started, bear in mind, bear in mind, more than anything, seasonally, the month of September is when crashes get started. Right. And you know we're we're half past August at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so we're into the riskiest window of the year. Right. Well, that's that's a, not a very comforting thought, but it's certainly some uh, certainly historically accurate. That's for sure. Uh, what do you think? Um, uh, let's let's say that um, with respect to gold. Then, what are your what are your thoughts? You know, when people ask me where do you think gold is going, I always like to say, well. I don't think that's nearly as important as what an ounce of gold will buy. Certainly as a gold mining company, you know, looking at gold mining companies, we've seen an increase in the real purchasing power of gold since the Lehman Brothers crisis in uh, 2008, 2009. It buys almost three times the amount of the Rogers Raw Material Fund as it did before. So, you know, that's my focus is what will an ounce of gold buy because if we have a deflationary environment, we might see gold you know, buying maybe not that high in nominal terms, but its purchasing power can go up as it did there. Or you can have a hyperinflationary environment in which it's competing with copper and all manner of other items for, you know, upside attention. What are your thoughts, uh, though, in, on the price of gold? 
Well, I'm, I, 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 I fully agree with what you're saying. Gold basically is the ultimate preservation of wealth mechanism. Both in deflation, it will lose less purchasing power than everything else. And as if we accelerate into a hyperinflation, you, know, you can almost pick a number. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're related to the growth of U.S. debt, the number could be anywhere from 3000 to $5,000 to $8,000. Know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just and it's a question of how much debt do they try to fight the fire with? Mm-hmm. And you know, so you know, to me, you don't buy gold because you want to make money. You buy gold because you want to preserve what you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you do get cycles when you can see it starting to turn. And I think we probably are in one of those turns coming into the last third of the year now, mm-hmm. where gold I think has taken a tremendous test because you had a marked shift in psychology where a lot of people shifted bearish on gold after the 1260 top. Mm-hmm. They were all talking about it going back down under a thousand, mm-hmm. but somehow it didn't seem to want to go under 1150, and now it's looking as though it wants to turn up and go to something like 14 or 1500 in the short mm-hmm. term. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're seeing, uh, Ian, on the chart, yeah. uh, possible yeah. 1400 or so? Yeah, something between 1450 and 1580. Uh, those mm-hmm. are two targets that I've published mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. Uh, that are largely based on the magnitude of the last three rallies that we've had in the gold mm-hmm. market just over the last five, uh, mm-hmm. seven years or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So could and you I, see that? I think that's where we're headed. Could you see that happening then as the equity markets weaken? Uh, absolutely, because mm-hmm. I think, again, when the equity, equity markets are going down, it's going to be partly because there's a bit of a currency crisis ballooning up mm-hmm. that's going to start to have some impact. And as Treasury yields get you know, to virtual zero and the real cost of money is basically going negative, that's the strongest influence there is for buying gold. Mm-hmm. You know, for as long as you've got negative returns on paper, why buy paper? Ian, we only have a couple of minutes here. Let me just ask you then, uh, in summing up, what would you suggest uh, a portfolio, I mean, everybody's different, of course, but a portfolio should be, as you said, comprised, you want to have some gold in there to preserve wealth, not necessarily to to make money. You're not looking to get wealthier. You just want to preserve what you have. But given your outlook on the markets, we've got a bond market that sooner or later is going to tank, probably, although you see it getting stronger, possibly, in the near term. We've got, uh, you know, we've got a gold market that looks pretty, pretty good, but we've got an equity market that looks dismal. What would you tell investors they should do with their money right now in general? Uh, in, in general, I would have a lot of purchasing power on the sidelines for Americans. That would be essentially zero return T-bill type cash, uh, because I think that there's going to be quite an interesting opportunity to buy things if I'm right that the, the stock market's going to have sort of a crash-like environment. In that crash-like environment, that's the point at which I'd be wanting to look at buying things like the gold and the and silver mining shares. Mm-hmm. But you know, in a, in a down market, the metals can go up, and the shares of the miners may not go with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's I think there's an opportunity coming up in the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. probably to get the mining shares, should we say, on sale. Interesting. My my preference my preference at this point is to try and relatively speaking avoid the major miners because their very long term history, as the industry is consolidated, is that for the most part they really don't outperform the price of gold. You know, everyone argues that somehow the producer of a commodity is leveraged to make much greater profits on mm-hmm. commodity price appreciation. Mm-hmm. But I can demonstrate you know in charts going right back to the 1930s. 
that the miners have their cycles, but then they give it all back and the M&A activity and the hedging and everything else that they've done over the years has resulted in them building empires for themselves, not necessarily to the benefit of their shareholders. Interesting. What about... I'm more, I'm more attracted. There's a relatively new ETF that was launched about in November of 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ticker symbol is GDXJ. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's basically the gold miners index, but it's the juniors. It's about mm-hmm. 60 stocks that are all the second and third tier companies mm-hmm. who probably are going to end up being taken over by the major gold companies who make up the GDX ETF. Mm-hmm. And for someone that doesn't want to get into individual stock picking, I think the GDXJ is an interesting vehicle just for having portfolio representation. Oh, that is interesting, and I would uh, take a look at that myself because I, what I see happening, we're seeing some very, very strong profits come into the gold mining sector, right? The big guys are reporting some very nice profits now that I think uh, is consistent with this real price of gold rise that I've been talking about to my subscribers on this show and you and I just mentioned briefly. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, but ultimately, you know, the big guys aren't good at finding the new deposits. You know, the little companies, uh, one that I know you're associated with, and perhaps will be talking to us uh, to our listeners about sometime in the future. The little guys, the small companies, have the ability, uh, the flexibility, the corporate mandate to put high risk capital in the ground, and they, these are the guys that are finding the new deposits. Then uh, the capital comes down the food chain from the big guys to the juniors, the successful juniors then. And that's where I'm seeing an awful lot of money made in, I think will be made. We're not seeing it yet, but do you see that for the juniors then coming on later in the cycle? Oh, ab- absolutely. And I, th- I think that process is actually already underway to a, uh, to a lesser extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to see it's the, it's the, the real fortunes historically in the gold mining business have been made by the discoverers. Mm-hmm. You know, in some cases, they went on to develop their own mines, but in the modern era, with the, with the involvement of the corporate financing side of the banking industry and the industry, it makes no, almost no sense to try and develop your own mine. Right. You, ba- you basically develop it up to the point where the majors, you know, somebody mining three to six million ounces a year mm-hmm. has to find that much new reserves each year just to pretend to be a growth company. Right. And so the net result is, to me, the money, the real money is going to be made in the highest risk sector, and that is the people that are out there actually discovering gold deposits and proving them up and promoting them to the point that the majors will end up making what I call overpriced merger and acquisition activity. And, that, well, that, that, and that's, that's one of the reasons I haven't been really active in that business since the 1980s, but I've sort of reluctantly inherited uh, a participation in that sector that we'll be talking about some, hopefully in the next month or so. Good. I look forward to that. I, I, I'm totally with you there on that, Ian. I've seen it happen, you know, through the, the last bull market in the 70s. We did see the juniors come on. You know, we did, I think this bull market's much bigger, though, than the one in the 70s. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. The one in the 1970s was basically the warm-up act to what we're yeah. going through now. Right, right. This is okay. the, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say, I, I, I was laughing earlier this year when people were talking about when gold got up to 1250 that it was into some sort of an exponential run that was yeah. even worse than 1980. Yeah. I, actually, I For years, I've been publishing a chart that overlays early 2000 with early uh, 1970. And if we were to replicate what happened to the gold price in 1980, the current gold price would have to go to something like $5,480. Wow. 
There you yeah, go. For nowhere near that. This advance to date has been remarkably orderly. And what's interesting is on the overlay of this period with that period, the big accelerator that sent gold up was from November, October, November 1978 to 1980. Gold ran from 300 to 850. Mm-hmm. And that was the result of a dollar crisis. Mm-hmm. that hit in 19, October 1978, and from October 78 into 1980, basically you had concerted action by the central banks to stop the decline of the dollar. And they produced a couple of sharp bounces in the dollar that are somewhat similar to the recent bounces that we've seen. Mm-hmm. And it's quite ironic that on this go-around, it started with a euro crisis mm-hmm. virtually in the same month on yep. that chart overlay. Interesting. As the dollar crisis of that cycle. And to me, what we've set off is if we're going to replay 1980, that period takes off in the year 2010, peaking mid-2011, possibly into 2012. Hmm. Interesting. And I think we're approaching a window of risk. And then, of course, I look at the U.S. election picture and just shake my head. Yeah, right. Well, and you can look at, you know, in comparing the bull market of the 70s with the one we have now, you can also look at the fundamentals of our country. We're in much worse shape, I think, and nobody would disagree, even mainstream uh, optimists would not disagree with that. We have, you know, the, the trade deficits, of course, but the debt, the debt is just absolutely enormous, and it cannot be repaid, according to almost anybody that looks seriously at it, not only the debt that's on the books now, but the off-balance sheet debts that are coming do for baby boomers in the years to come. Unfortunately, Ian, we're out of time. We could go on. You could go on for hours. I know you, you have so much good things, so many good things to say. That's why I want our listeners to be sure they know how they can get in touch uh, with your publication, Deliberations. Can you tell our listeners how they can learn to know or how they can sign up and subscribe to your, to your excellent newsletter, which, by the way, folks, I have personally done myself. Can you tell them, Ian? Uh, basically, they would have to do a Google search for Mac- McAvity Deliberations. <laughs> and, that's, and that's spelled uh, M-C- uh, M-C-A-V-I-T-Y. Deliberations. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I'm just looking up a website here. The, the website that's on, the thing that's up on the web is not my site. It's, pro- mm-hmm. it's put up there by my chart provider. Mm-hmm. And if they go to www chartguy, all one word, dot com, slash deliberations. Mm -hmm. They'll get a lot of the details. All right. Well, folks, it's something, you know, it's worth the effort. Uh, Be sure to check out Deliberations. It's an excellent newsletter. Ian uh, does this work. He's been doing it for many years. He brings lots of experience. He's a really a really bright uh, guy who's astute, uh, very, very strong analyst. He understands history. I think one of the best bargains you can find in the newsletter writing business, and I'm one that's competing with Ian for for all the newsletter writer dollars out there, so I'm saying it uh, honestly. I can tell you that. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Folks, don't go away. That's all the time we've got uh, with Ian right now. But coming up next, we were just talking about junior mining companies, and we've got the CEO of Richfield Ventures. It's a company in British Columbia, that's exploring and developing, I think, what could be a multi-million ounce gold deposit open pit uh, target there in British Columbia. I think it's a very exciting story, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Richfield Ventures. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. 
Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love I'll be sliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, because of some scheduling complexities, uh, I will be talking to Richfield Ventures next week rather than during this segment. With respect to Richfield, I would like to mention that uh, I think it's a very exciting junior exploration uh, gold company uh, that I think has the potential to rise dramatically in price, and I underscore the word potential, uh, because it is an exploration company. It's a high-risk, uh, high-return proposition. But there is some good reason to believe the company could outline some 4 or 5 million ounces of uh, relatively low-cost ounce mining ounces uh, in its project in British Columbia. And the company did announce today, in fact, that it is 
now starting to, uh, it has moved a second drill rig onto their property in British Columbia. So I'm expecting some relatively, uh, well, expecting some uh, a steady flow of drill results coming out in the next number of weeks. Um, although Richfield can't be with us uh, until next week, um, they will be. They will be with me, and we'll be talking to them probably in the second half of the show next week. I am most grateful to have with me Dr. Lawrence Kotlikoff. He's a professor of economics at Boston University and the author of several excellent books, including Jimmy Stewart is Dead, and that has to do with uh, f- uh, policy, uh, financial policy uh, uh, suggestions. Uh, and uh, Spend Till the End, which is a personal finance uh, book that can help people optimize uh, the choices they make in terms of spending now. You don't want to be left, uh, you know, when you pass away, you can't take it with you, so you may as well spend it and uh, and enjoy it, but at the same time, you want to make sure you're not destitute and you have enough to, to make ends meet. So uh, Professor Kotlikoff has some ideas in those books, and uh, if we can't get to some of those ideas today, we may be able to talk to him next week about that. So I, I do have to thank my uh, my colleague and uh, business partner, Chen Lin, for sending me a, a link to Dr. Kotlikoff's recent discussion on Bloomberg Television. It was that very frank and honest discussion on Bloomberg that prompted me to try to get him on the show, and I'm very, very pleased to have him with me. On that uh, interview on Bloomberg, um, Professor Kotlikoff noted that the fiscal health of the United States is not only in pretty bad shape, arguably worse than Greece or as bad as Greece, but actually we are already bankrupt. And he wasn't just speaking uh, from his own sources, but basically was relying on some pretty mainstream sources, namely the IMF and the Office of Management and Budget. So uh, we take very seriously what Dr. Kotlikoff has to say. We've had, of course, similar warnings on this show from people, but when we can get somebody from a mainstream institution like uh, like Boston University to say these things, I think, you know, a lot of people have to start taking some notice. So I'm very thankful, Professor Kotlikoff, uh, for joining us on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, just one quick cor- correction. It was the IMF and the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, okay, excellent. Long-term projections. Thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. Well, uh, it, it's my belief that you can help us live up to the name of our show that I invited you on, and I um, and I hope we can get to some of your suggestions today. Uh, the premise of our show is, in order to fix things, we have to properly diagnose them. We have to know what the problems are before we can uh, before we can you know set policy in motion and and for ourselves as well as for the nation. So. Um, that's why uh, when I heard you talk on Bloomberg, I said, uh, this is a mainstream fellow, a person uh, from, a, from a major university that I think has got it right. Um, so you said on Bloomberg television recently that our government is essentially not telling us the truth. Uh, in fact, uh, um, they're maybe lying to us. You noted that um, your information, as I just noted, is from some pretty reliable sources. So can you take a minute or two to tell our listeners what the IMF and uh, the congressional uh, budget people are telling us uh, at this time about the solvency of the United States? They're not putting it on the front page of the New York Times, for sure, for the most part, but what, what is there? What research do you have that, that has led you to the conclusion that we're in pretty bad shape? Well, both institutions have done long-term projections of spending revenues of the government. And economics says that you look at the value in the present, what we call the present value of all the spending, it has to be covered by all the revenue. So it's a pretty simple, straightforward calculation to see whether the present value of the revenue is large enough to cover the present value of the spending. And spending here includes servicing the official debt 
It also includes paying for Medicare and Medicaid benefits to the baby boomers and to everybody else who comes along. It includes paying for defense spending. All the different types of expenditures the federal government does are included. And this is a very long-term analysis, so we're looking at uh, things are, when you form a present value, the value in the present of all your future Un uncovered bills, which is what the fiscal gap is, the present value of spending minus present value of revenue, um, you're making less of uh, spending that's way in the future. You're doing what's called discounting. You're discounting. Mm -hmm. You're making less of that money. But anyway, when you do this calculation based on, for example, the Congressional Budget Office's long-term projection, it's called the alternative fiscal scenario. It's the one they, I think, is most realistic find a $202 trillion fiscal gap. That uh, is huge compared to the official debt, which is around $9 trillion. But what it's telling us, this calculation, is that all the unofficial debts to pay for Social Security and Medicare and defense spending, et cetera, uh, are just enormous compared to official debts, so that we've put most of our, our debts off the books. Mm -hmm. Uh, accounting that makes things look a lot better than they actually are. So having $9 trillion in debt is not a uh, great situation either. No, and uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just enormous um, that uh, that the government can get away with that sort of accounting and, and sort of deceitful accounting, I would say. Um, I can't imagine the private sector could get away with that kind of that kind of accounting. Yeah, the, the only accounting that really is sensible in this context is, is this fiscal gap calculation, which is comprehensive, and how you call things, uh, whether you call uh, a that you, the public, makes to the government, whether you call that a tax payment or a loan to the government. It's quite arbitrary how to label things. Labeling doesn't matter when it comes, comes to the fiscal gap. Under any labeling convention, you're still going to end up with the same fiscal gap. So, economics uh, way of understanding fiscal policy. Now, uh, this type of analysis has been pressed for the last really 30 years, 20 years at least. Uh, the Clinton administration, uh, we tried to get them to publish this in their budget. Uh, I and uh, a professor at uh, Berkeley, Alan Auerbach, Professor Jagdish Gokhale, economist, uh, we worked on this analysis with OMB a couple days before it was supposed to be published. It was censored by the Clinton folks because they wanted to say how great a job they were doing, doing cutting the deficit when, in fact, they were letting the uh, the explicit deficit uh, grow by leaps and bounds. The, the Bush administration censored this. The Bush two administration censored um, the fiscal gap calculation that. Secretary O'Neill was trying to put into the president's budget. He was fired on December 7, 2002. Days later, the study that he commissioned uh, within the Treasury and was supposed to be in the president's budget in February, it was it was censored two days after he was fired. Probably one of the main reasons he was fired was to keep this thing out of the press, the study. And uh, the IMF just put out a fiscal gap calculation showing that uh, there's an enormous problem here and that gap is huge. How they buried it uh, within their annual review of U.S. Uh, finance 
but it's there. And if you uh, the Bloomberg column that I wrote, go uh, to my website and click on op-eds, you'll find this column I wrote. And you'll see the, the link to the IMF study. And that says that we need 14% of GDP every year for taxes if we're going to cover all this spending. Now, you have to realize that we're currently collecting 14.9% of GDP federal taxes. So the IMF is in effect saying we need to double all taxes immediately, permanently. That's FICA taxes, income taxes, gift taxes, corporate income taxes. We have to double all these taxes immediately and permanently to cover the bills. That's how big the bills are that are coming due. We're in deep, in deep water and need to have some very radical reforms to get our, our uh, house in order. I'd say we're in deep uh, in deep trouble because uh, you know just uh, and just talking to our accountant and our little uh, our little business here, which is a modest little business, uh, we're looking between New York State and federal of, of paying almost fifty percent of our taxes already. So if you added uh, in a, of that amount, uh, probably what seventy five percent or so is federal taxes. So if you add that. There's nothing left. If you, if you just relied on taxes and not spending cuts, but then you're looking at our economic situation now, and I have to ask you, how could we do either right now? How could we afford to start increasing taxes? How could we afford to have the government all of a sudden stop spending when the private sector isn't, isn't spending any money, or, or at least where the private sector is so weak? Well, we need to get our spending under control immediately, and that requires real radical reform in the health care system, uh, a, a simple radical reform, not a complicated radical reform like we've just had, which is mm -hmm. a 1,000-page solution. We need a simple fix to our financial system, uh, and that's what uh, Jimmy Stewart is Dead book uh, talks about that. But it's also, I think, a somewhat humorous analysis of what's happened uh, in this crisis. Then um, we need to fix the retirement system, so security is broken as well. And we need to fix the tax system. So if we can get four radical reforms that simplify these institutions, then we have a chance at at uh, working down this you know fiscal gap, dramatically reducing it, and succeeding as a country. If we if we can maintain these uh, bureaucratic nightmares as policies, and just continue to do too little too late, we're going to end up the way of Argentina. And that's going to be, uh, this is all going to end up with the government printing huge amounts of money and, and end up in hyperinflation. Mm. Because the government, you know, the way things are going, the Democrats think you can spend your way out of this. The Republicans think you can cut taxes out of this. And both of these folks are trying to expropriate the next generation, as far as I can tell. We need to have adults running our fiscal policy and need to get very lean and mean what, what we do for going forward. So I have proposals on how to fix these things, which are in the book, Jimmy Stewart is Dead, and they're very simple. You know, they, um, the afterword of the book fixes the tax system, the health care system, the retirement system, about two pages, uh, not 2,000 pages. Well, uh, Professor Kotlikoff, I find this very discouraging, though, in a way, because here you and a prominent professor uh, from California, and uh, no less than the Secretary of the Treasurer, O'Neill, uh, and, and a lot of other voices in the mainstream as well, have been calling for fiscal responsibility, and yet the 
politics trumps anything that's reasonable, anything that's statesmanlike. I mean, what hope is there? Do we have to see the system break down before it's fixed, or is there a chance? I mean, what in the world is going to wake the American public up? They don't care. I mean, they're watching Desperate Housewives or whatever they're doing. They're not paying attention to this stuff. And what you have then is, uh, you know, just more politics because people want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to deal with the reality. Isn't that the problem? Well, yes and no. The the column I did for Bloomberg, which again is on Kotlikoff.net under op-eds, uh, received uh, more reads than any other column in Bloomberg for the last month. Last Interesting. Month. So Good. Lots and lots of concern out there and uh, speaking of the truth. And I'm not a Republican or Democrat. I, I basically think politicians are lower life forms. That's something wrong, but, but we, need to, we need to act like adults here and, and save the economy for our kids. can't double their taxes, can't double our own taxes. And we're spending 17% of GDP on health care. We can give everybody a fine basic uh, health insurance pro- policy for 10% of GDP. And and then keep the growth of that under control. We always keep it at ten percent of GDP. Then we'll be in shape. That's what Switzerland spends on all of it, all healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they have a very good healthcare system. Right. And we don't need to be running wars that we can't win. Or we don't intend to win. Uh, right. For for year after year, you know, if we're going to win the war, let's win it. If we're going to screw around, let's get out. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear you say that. We've had another guest on this show, uh, John Perkins, who, who suggested that there are some motives for the reasons that we continue to, to run wars that we can't win and don't particularly want to win, but that's a whole other subject. You know what? I, we're, we're basically out of time, uh, Professor Kotlikoff, and what I'd like to do, if possible, is have you back next week to talk about some of your answers to these problems, both in terms of the macroeconomic policy and in terms of individual responsibility, what we can do, assuming the government doesn't fix things, is I think it's probably foolhardy to rely on government to help us out all the time. That's the direction we've been going, and, and God knows it hasn't been working very well. So would you be willing and able to come back next week? Yeah, absolutely. And if you go to my, again, kotlikoff.net, you'll see a, a link to my company's website, which is uh, esplanner.com, stands for Economic Security Planner. And uh, we have some personal financial planning software which helps people figure out how to safely raise their living standard, do the best they can in this environment. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Kotlikoff. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I look forward very much to, to picking up where we left off next week uh, in terms of individual what we as individuals can do and what the country can do. Thank you so much. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with my two partners, Roger Wiegand and Chen Lin, for the wrap-up of today's show. Thank you, uh, Professor Kotlikoff. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. CA for further information. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here with my two partners, Roger uh, Wiegand and Chen Lin. Uh, Roger, I want to jump right to you. Uh, you uh, sent me an email earlier today about ETFs. There's some large hedge fund that is suggesting that people get out of the gold and silver ETFs. Would you explain to our listeners very briefly uh, what that's all about? There's a company in London called Hindi Capital, H-I-N-D-E. They're a London-based gold hedge fund. And they have mounted a ferocious attack on the precious metal exchange-traded funds. They, in particular, do not like the largest one, the Spider Gold Trust, sponsored by State Street. They're saying that these ETFs should not be owned by serious professional investors. And in a highly provocative paper, they said that double counting of gold holdings is endemic in the global financial system. Now, we've been aware of some of the problems in the ETFs regarding gold and silver for a long time, and just uh, last week or the week before, we wrote in our letter, Trader Tracks, that we do now use the SLV and the GLD for trading signals only in our newsletter. We do not recommend anyone owns or trades these markets, because in our particular opinion, we believe that not only could that gold be double-counted, but we're really suspicious as to whether some of these ETFs, in fact, have all the gold they claim to own. I think there's a lot of paper trading involved in these things, and there's just better places to trade and go. 
Well, that's uh, certainly a position that James Turk has taken, uh, the founder of goldmoney.com, and Turk has held that and and has has combed over the prospectuses of these institutions and has pointed out that, in fact, there's nothing that would prohibit these guys from doing all kinds of derivative uh, products from them and not necessarily have the gold and silver in place. Roger, you're also very bullish on gold right now, right? Absolutely. Uh, We did new tech work today. We see a a little bit of a sell-off, just a mild technical selling coming this month to 11.75. Our new forecast for the December gold futures minimum 13.75, uh, 13, excuse me, 13.25 to 13.75. That's our minimum. It could, in fact, go higher, depending on some fundamental problems in credit and the stock markets. Okay, that's very consistent with some things that Ian McAvity told us earlier, too. Thank you for that, Roger Chen. Jumping to you for a second here, uh, oh, you have a couple of uh, stocks that you'd like to talk about. One, I know, it's Oceana Gold, which is your favorite gold shares, and, and honestly, mine, too. But could you just tell our listeners why you're so bullish on Oceana? Yes, hi. This company has been a steady performer, you know, has been in steady uh, production stage already. So there's no, you know, you don't wake up one morning and say, you know, the stock down a lot because of some glitches or something they couldn't meet expectations. So far, it has been pretty consistent. And then the second half looks even better. I just talked to the management, and then they sincerely looking to surprise the market on upside. So uh, they're working very hard on a Filipino joint venture or strategic partner. And uh, also they're doing a lot of drilling in the area called Rifton. Uh, so that's the area where 10 million ounce gold was produced from the surface. So they're gonna, they, if they drill deep, they can find some dramatic you know, gold finding. So that, that's something uh, the drilling result will be coming. And then if it's good, they may you know, start the fourth month right there. So wow. everything then- looks very exciting. And that's in New Zealand, isn't it, Chen? Uh, their exactly. main, uh, main operation, their gold mining is in New Zealand. And the property in the Philippines is a copper-gold uh, porphyry target, a large deposit that's going to require a lot of CapEx. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the company may be looking for, looking for a joint venture partner to spend the big bucks to put that in production and then perhaps carry Oceana along for a certain percentage. Is that the strategy, do you think? Yeah, they're hoping to uh, have a you know, strategic partner take the copper so they can get the gold because the copper gold, because they don't really care about copper. That's the most ideal situation, but also looking for other options as well. Okay, Chen, we have just maybe 30 seconds for you to tell us about an energy company that you like that's really hot on your uh, radar screen right now. Could you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, I just mentioned my letter today. I mean, it's a small company. I mean, they can potentially have uh, uh, 10,000 barrels per day uh, in a few months. I mean, the market cap is less than 100 million, and it's called Mark Resource. It, it's, you know, it's a, for small companies, it's very hard, you know, to have this kind of uh, uh, prospect. You know, in the next few months, we'll see. So, I mean, right now, it's trading at 28 cents. Uh, it, it can go dramatic higher if they can reach the goal. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Chen and Roger. Now, folks, you can uh, take advantage of some special trial offers, uh, low-cost trial offers to both Chen Lin's uh, uh, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling letter, as well as Roger Wiegand's Trader Tracks letter. Uh, call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. Or go to our website at miningstocks.com. 
That's miningstocks.com to take advantage of these low-priced trial introductory offers for Roger's letter, Chen's letter, and my letter called J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks as well. That's uh, just about all the time we have. I want to thank each of you for listening again. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to have uh, Professor Kotlikoff has agreed to come back with us. We're going to have him. We're going to also have some, uh, some other strategies about how you can protect for the difficult times that may lie ahead. So you won't want to miss next week's show. Uh, we'll be back again same time at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Uh, and I want to thank our producer, Tacey Trump. She's my senior executive producer. Uh, Ruben Colombe, operations manager, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Again, thanks to our sponsors for making it financially possible. Thanks to each of you for listening and making this the number one show on the Voice America business channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't real.